You grew up uh, in Kentucky. What was your... I was an army brat. Okay. What was your first crime? First crime was shoplifting. My mom, uh, and I, I've, I've spoken about this a few times, but uh, I'm from Eastern Kentucky. Hazard, Hazard is coal country. My dad was coming out of the military. He was a, a captain in the army, helicopter pilot. Army downsizes, he gets booted out. He goes back to mining coal, is what he does, uh, strip mining. So a bulldozer operator is what he was doing. Uh, my mom was a nurse, an LPN, and she, she worked long enough to see dad off to work and then she would go out and we call it whoring around. She would go out and party with other men. Uh, just, I mean, just, uh, I mean, just horrible, horrible stuff. And, and just abuse out the wazoo from, uh, I remember one time me and my sister come home. I was probably eight or nine, my sister a year younger. And we, we, the bus drops us off. The hood of the car is up. So we walk by like, that's odd. We walk in, Denise asks mom. So we walk in, mom is sitting on the sofa in the living room with her legs crossed, acting all chill. I was like, what's wrong? What's up? Where's dad? I don't know, she said. I look on the floor and I see like pieces of marble broken off. The TV is pulled out from the wall. And I was like, what, what is this? So there's some spaghetti on the stove. We go to get some. And mom's like, no, no, don't, don't touch that. Don't touch that. That's for your father. Well, what had happened was my mom had cut the spark plug wires on the car so dad couldn't get away. She cuts the cable behind the TV so that when he goes to turn the TV on, there's no signal. You know, you just got the snow on there. So he gets behind the TV trying to see what's going on. As he bends over the TV, she takes a marble statue, clocks him in the head with it. The spaghetti on the stove had rat poison in it. So he had ended up walking, I forget how many miles, to the hospital. And he still has a piece of that marble like in his skull. But of course, with us, her story when we got home was, I don't know where he is. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know why that's on the floor. That was my mom. And this is not atypical. I remember that when my dad, the one time he tried to divorce her, me and my dad were living in an apartment. My mom had my sister. My mom climbs in the window of the apartment. I wake up hearing this, you know, this noise in in the living room, walk in and my mom's got a knife to my dad's throat, threatening to kill him. That was my mom. So, and she was she she was a criminal. So, what was she so bent on killing him for? My mom's problem was she always, uh, and it's it's weird with her. I think it's because of the way she grew up. She grew up abused as well. But her issue is that she always had to test people's love. If I do this to you, will you still love me? If I sleep around on you, will you still love me? If I threaten to kill you, will you still love me? If I abuse the kids or neglect the kids, will they still love me? Uh, My dad was so crazy about my mom that he put up with it and he became the enabler of the family. He was scared of losing her. But I get the worst parts from mom and dad. Uh, From my mom, I get that criminal mindset. From my dad, I get that fear of the people that I love leaving me. And that's that's a lot of the reason that I break crime historically. It's, it's for cash, but I use cash to buy love. These are true stories from the dark side of the internet. I'm Jack Resider. This 
is Darknet Diaries. This episode is sponsored by Delete Me. How would you like to wake up and discover your bank account has been emptied? Or get overdue notices for credit cards you never applied for? Or worse, how susceptible are we all to identity theft and fraud? I used to stress out about thinking about how much my information is available to scammers on the internet. But not anymore. And my solution is this service called Delete Me. Delete Me is a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search database on the web. And in the process, helps prevent potential ID theft, doxing, and phishing scams. I tried it, and they immediately got busy scouring the internet for my name and gave me reports on what they found on me. And then they got busy deleting those things for me. It was great to have someone on my team when it comes to being private online. Take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. Now, at a special discount, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash darknetdiaries and use promo code DD20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash darknetdiaries. That's joindeleteme.com slash darknetdiaries and enter code DD20 at checkout. So today we're going to hear the wild and crazy story of Brett Johnson. This is one of those stories that I was very skeptical at first. Like, no way did he do all this. But after talking with some people who knew him and reading all the police reports, it checks out. Oh, and I should mention there are a fair bit of swear words in this episode. And it has some adult and mature content. So fair warning. Brett grew up in a weird situation. His dad was no stranger to doing illegal things. For instance, his dad was a helicopter pilot in the military, and one time his dad tried to sell some stolen hand grenades. And after the military, his dad tried running drugs back and forth to Mexico as a helicopter pilot. And at one point, he even tried becoming a cop with the sole idea that he was going to do a drug bust and somehow keep the money he confiscated. When all those plans fizzled out and the family had no money, that's when Brett's mom decided to take the kids and run. At that point in time, we were in Panama City, Florida. My mom leaves my dad. Uh, we thought we were, me and Denise thought we were coming up to Kentucky for a funeral. And we weren't. Well, I mean, there was a funeral, but we thought we were only going to be gone a week. So we packed enough clothes for a week. My dad thought we were only going to be gone for a week. And I don't see my dad again for, um, geez, I don't know, 10 years, something like that. His mom took the kids and moved to Panama City, Florida. And they moved in with her parents. Her dad was just as crazy, super strict, and pretty abusive. Just to give you an idea, they weren't allowed to eat any of Grandpa's food. And they weren't allowed to make any noise after dark. And he was very strict on how much water they could use. For instance, he wouldn't even let them fill up the bathtub. And both Brett and his sister Denise did not want to be around Grandpa when he gets angry. We had no soap. Right. We had really very little clothes. I mean, two pairs of panties. And you weren't allowed to wash them. Or you'd have to wash them by hand. There was that, you know. I remember going over to Pizza Hut and stealing the soap from Pizza Hut so I could bring it back and wash my underwear in the sink with the soap. You know, but I had to be careful because... 
if he knew I was doing that, I was wasting water and that would set him off. And if you set him off, his goal was to kill you. And it was. I mean, we had that round table in the kitchen upstairs in their house. And there were times when he would get the butcher knife on you and you'd do the little dance around the table <laughs> until he got tired. And then he would finally sit down and he would, he would look at you and say, don't let me catch you, I'll kill you. <laughs> or he'd get really upset and then he'd go looking for his gun. And that's time for you to leave. Yeah, yeah so you'd leave for a while and come back in a few hours. Your parents are sorrier than well shit, and we should not have to feed you. And, and they didn't want to feed us. No. So uh, mom had been gone for a few days. She started partying, using drugs, everything else like she was doing. We didn't have any food in the house, and you know, I was the guy that was scared that mom was go wasn't going to come home because she'd tell us that we were, she was going we'd find her dead someplace, that she was going to commit suicide, that She'd given up her life for us, everything else. So she'd been gone. I'm worried she's not coming back. Denise never worried at all. Denise was just always mad at her. We were living downstairs from my grandfather. He had converted the downstairs into apartments, and we weren't allowed to go upstairs to eat. Uh, they just wouldn't let us. And this one time, I was 10. My sister Denise was 9. So Denise walks in one day, and she's got a pack of pork chops in her hand. And uh, I was like, where'd you get that? And she was like, I stole it. And I'm like... Show me how you did that, sister. So she uh, takes me over to A&P, and we, she shows me how she's stuffing, you know, meat and everything down her pants. And I'm like, well, we can eat. <laughs> so we, we start stealing food, and we look, look across the way because we were wanting to make sandwiches. That's, a, actually, that's the actual story is we were wanting to make sandwiches. Well, you can't stuff a loaf of bread down your pants. Well, Kmart was across the way, so we went over there and stole a hoodie so we could stuff bread down the sleeves of the, of the hoodie. That's when we found out, hey, we can shoplift clothes and then books, games, jewelry, toys, all that stuff. Mom finally comes home and sees, you know, the new television that I'm playing and everything else. And where'd that come from? And I looked at her and said, oh, we found it. And she's like, no, you didn't find that. Denise stands up, never lies at all. Denise stands up, we stole it. My mom, my mom looks at my sister and, and this, I mean, she's, she's like, show me how you did it. Not only does she join us, but she goes and gets her mom to join us as well. So it's grandmother, mom, me and my sister taking these road trips to different malls to steal clothes. And well, they stole clothes and jewelry. I'd always go to the bookstore first and steal books because I like to read a lot. And uh, we were at the Fort Henry Thomas Mall in Bristol, Tennessee. They had dropped me off at the B. Dalton bookstore. They had went in J.C. Penney's and we were supposed to meet back at the, at the vehicle, I think like at 1, 1.30. I came back with a load of books. Nobody's there. So I'm, sitting, I'm standing around about 30 minutes like, okay, where are they? And I'm only like 10. So I'm like, where are they? So I wait a while. Finally, I'm like, okay, I got to go in and find them. So I stuff the books under the blazer, walk into JCPenney's. As I'm walking in, there's two security guards standing right in the entryway there. And I hear my name, Brett Johnson, come over one of the walkie-talkies. And I'm like, hey, that's me. And they're like, that's you. And I was like, yeah, they're like, come with us. So I go, they take me to the security room and my mom and grandmother, they're huddled in a corner, crying, screaming, telling everybody they didn't do it, didn't mean to. This is the first time we've ever done it. Denise is in the opposite corner. I mean, she's just, I mean, Denise is ballistic, just angry, staring holes through like she could kill them right there. That's the first crime that I committed there. That marked the end of his sister's criminal behavior. She totally stopped shoplifting after that. But this was the beginning of Brett's criminal career. He continued to shoplift and steal, 
never getting caught for it either. And he watched as his mom did criminal acts too. His mom was shoplifting and he learned she was drug trafficking and she would sometimes call random people to try to get them to donate to a charity, but they were really just giving her money instead. And this is called charity fraud. She even tried to steal heavy equipment sometimes. She was kind of an opportunistic criminal, getting involved with whatever came her way. And Brett was watching it all. And after some years of this, Brett started talking with his dad again, but only over the phone. His dad had his own issues. He was breaking the law and stuff too. And when Brett was 15, he got his first taste of jail. When I was 15, I was in Eastern Kentucky. My, uh, my dad had, had called, I'd, I'd called him and he said he was getting married. And I was always of the opinion that I was gonna, you know, that dad was gonna save us. So uh, he said he was getting married. I went to the, I was at the hospital on, on, a, on a payphone there, got in an elevator and ended up assaulting a woman that got on the elevator with me. I just, uh, I guess I snapped or whatever. I, I don't know. I don't, um, I don't know. I was 15 at that point. I was charged with assault in the first degree. So they put me in solitary for six months. Uh, Why do you think uh, the news from your father getting married caused this? I think that was the last, uh, and I, I don't think it caused it. I think that uh, it's it was looking back now. I think that I just I had taken mentally as much as I could because it turns out the woman looked a lot like mom. So um, I think that I had just with that final news of dad. I think I think that um, I'd always been the guy that thought I was going to. You know, it took me to save me, and I've lived my entire life like that. If you're going to do something, do it yourself. But uh, when I heard that from him, I think that child in me, that small part of having hope of somebody uh, of somebody saving me was uh, was finally gone. And maybe I realized that uh, that just wasn't going to happen. So I, I, I don't like to make excuses for that because uh, it was a horrible, horrible thing. And uh, I've, uh, I've lived my life... I mean, every single day I've thought about that. And uh, I, I, just, I, I wanted to mention that because I think it's important. I think it's important to the story and everything. This is going to be a heavy episode. Brett pleads guilty to this assault and goes to juvenile detention for a few months and starts attending high school in Hazard, Kentucky. This is where he finds a teacher who saw potential in Brett. He excelled in academics and drama in high school. And because he was doing well, he actually stayed away from crime for the most part. He graduated high school and wanted to be an actor. And he had some scholarship offers, but ended up just going to the community college there. He gets a part in a play. Then the head of the theater department from the San Jose State University in California came to see his play and saw Brett's performance. As soon as he sees it, he comes up to me and he's like, uh, I'll give you a full ride scholarship if you want to come to San Jose State right now. And I looked at him, I was like, done, let's do this. So I, I agree to the scholarship. He tells me it's, it's going to be great. He's, he actually says, hey, you're a, you're a big fish in a small pond. I'll make sure you're a big fish in a big pond. You'll go someplace. So I was like, let's do this. So he's like, I'll be back in, in a week. So he leaves, he flies back down in a week. He drives to my house. Uh, we were living in airport gardens at that point. I'm shooting basketball with some friends. 
he pulls up. I come over to meet him. I was like, hey, let me walk in and I'll introduce you to my mom. And he's like, no. He said, I can go in and meet her. I was like, all right. So he goes in and he's in there, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes, something like that. He comes out, never says a word, gets in the car, leaves. And uh, I didn't know what had happened. Find out, I don't know, a couple weeks later, I find out that my mom, he goes in to meet her and talk to her and tell her, you know, the opportunity that I've gotten, everything else like that. She pulls a knife on him and says, you know, I will, she had this line she used to say, she said, I will cut you from gizzard to sternum and uh, you're not going to steal my, my son from me. That scares the man to death. And of course, the scholarship and all that goes out the window at that point. That, uh, I don't know, I guess part of that kind of broke me of, uh, of leaving. There were similar problems going on with his sister. She was older by this point and going to college too, but her mom had a tight grip on her and didn't want her to go away and was doing very manipulative things to keep her. But the people at the college, about 90 minutes away, saw a glimpse of what Denise was going through and gave her a full scholarship and a place to stay and even protected her. This gave Denise the chance she needed to escape the bad gravity of her mom and get an education and get on her feet. She became a teacher, and a pretty good one, winning Teacher of the Year even, and she stayed clear of any criminal behavior. So I continued in community college, uh, had a girlfriend that was a preacher's daughter, and those were very, very decent people. Uh, for the most part, I didn't, I didn't think about breaking the law or anything else. That relationship fell apart after five years, and I met my first wife. Her name was Susan. Wanted out. Uh, Susan wanted out of home, out of out of, out of Hazard, Kentucky, and I knew that I, I kind of used that as a uh, as a way to get out of Hazard myself. So I faked a car accident. I'd bought this little Chevy Spectrum, and uh, I figured, hey, what I can do is I can cover its ass up with insurance make sure I get the insurance where they pay for lost wages as well. That way I'll have a steady paycheck coming in, fake the accident, go on like that. Well, my cousin Ronnie, he hears that I'm going to fake the accident. He comes up to me, he's like, hey, uh, can I get in on that with you? And I was like, sure, man, let's do this. So the day that we're faking the wreck, Ronnie goes to the dentist, has the dentist pull a tooth, tells the dentist, no, 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 don't pack it with gauze or anything. Just leave it like it is. So here Ronnie is. He's got this tooth pulled. We're riding up in the head of a hollow to uh, to fake this accident. We end up pushing the car over a hill. Then we climb down the hill and climb it back up. So it looks like we've we've done something. We uh, we walk our way out of the hollow, hitchhike to the uh, to the hospital, and file this this claim of an accident. And I get the money to uh, to move from Hazard, Kentucky, to Lexington, Kentucky, to go to school. And what happens is at that point. Again, I'm the guy that it's never been enough for me to, to, to show a, any, a love in a healthy relationship. I've always went overboard, way the hell overboard. So I told Susan, I was like, hey, don't worry about getting a job. You just go to school. Yeah, I've got the job. I've, and I got a job working at Lexmark, texting, uh, testing printer cards. And that was, that was an 18-hour, uh, no, I'm sorry, it was a 12-hour shift three days a week is what that was. So here I am busting my ass doing that. I've got an 18-hour class load. I'm not only doing that, all that, but I'm doing all the cooking and cleaning. Susan's going, she's never been away from home before, so that's hitting her pretty hard. It's arguments every single day and all that. Something had to give. And what gave was the job. I just couldn't do it. So I quit the job and immediately start into fraud. First types of fraud I started into was telemarketing fraud. So telemarketing and charity fraud. 
I was working for the Shriner Circus, selling circus uh, uh, tickets, making really good money doing that. As soon as that ended, I uh, they they transition over to the Gowanus Club, selling money for food baskets or selling food baskets for the um, the food centers. You'd you'd pay for a food basket like forty dollars. You buy a half basket for twenty. I steal their phone list, go out and start uh, start my own Gowanus Club. I get arrested doing that. He spends three months in jail. And with no money coming in, his wife had no choice but to go back and live with her parents in Hazard, Kentucky. And when he gets out of jail, he goes and lives with his wife in her parents' house. But just as he's getting out, his wife's father bought the family a new Hewlett-Packard computer. They're over there, you know, playing games, playing Duke Nukem and all that. I'm sitting there going, well, how do you make money on that? (laughs) So that's that's what I find eBay. And then eBay leads into all this other stuff. eBay is basically leads into uh, watching Inside Edition one night. They've got, uh, you know, talking about Beanie Babies. Uh, the first crime I really committed online was was that. I was watching this thing about Peanut, the Royal Blue Elephant. He was going for $1,500 on eBay. I'm sitting there going, need to find me a peanut. So I, you know, I was taking uh, classes at the community college in Hazard. And I was like, okay, find me a peanut. So I go around to all the little gift gift card stores in the area and everything, can't find the damn thing. They had all these little gray elephants online, and I was like, okay. So I buy the gray elephant, pay $8 for that, buy a pack of blue dye, go back and try start trying to dye the little guy. Can't dye him at all because he, he's made out of polyester. You get him out, I'm serious, you get him out, and he's blotchy, look like, looks like he's got the mange and everything else. I'm like, I'm, like, I'm not going to make money doing that. So I look around and find a picture of a real one online, post it, the lady wins the bid. And that that history of, you know, that scam mentality that I had already, that kicks in at that point. I'm like, okay, I can't wait for her to contact me. I'll contact her. Not, that way it sets the tone of the conversation. So I sent her an email and I was like, hey, uh, we've not dealt before. I don't know if I can trust you. I've got the animal. What I need you to do is send me a U.S. postal money order. It's issued by the government. It protects both of us. It makes sure I get my, get my money. And because it's issued by the government, it protects you as well. She believed that. She sent me a U.S. postal money order, two of them, for $1,500. I, the reason I wanted a U.S. postal, it's very difficult to cancel that postal uh, money order. And you can take it to the post office and cash it out as well. You don't have to have a bank account. So she sent me that. I went to the post office, cashed him out, sent her this mangy-looking animal. Get a call right after that as soon as she receives it. I didn't order this. My response was, lady, you ordered a blue elephant, and I sent you a blue-ish elephant. And I kept putting her off. She kept calling and bitching and complaining because I I did this under my real name. She kept calling and bitching and everything. And I kept putting her off, and finally, she just disappears. And that's where I learned, I talk about this a lot, that first lesson of cybercrime, that if you delay a victim long enough, if you just keep putting them off, a lot of them get so exasperated, they they literally throw their hands up in the air, walk away, and you don't hear from them again. And to this day, most victims of scams and cybercrime, they never really complain to law enforcement at all. So it, it really reinforces the idea of that criminal activity. You know, no one's complaining, so you can keep right on going with it. By this point, Brett is in his mid-20s, and I stopped him here to try to recap what his criminal activity has been up until this point. But this just reminded him of so many more crimes he committed. Uh, One of the things I got away with, there was a uh, baseball card shop in Hazard, Kentucky, and I got it in my head that uh, I could go in and steal the cards one night and uh, 
take them, you know, a couple of states away and resell them. So here I am, I break into the shop, you know, two o'clock in the morning and didn't know they had a silent alarm. So two o'clock in the morning, I'm in there stealing cards and everything else. And all of a sudden the hazard police pull up, lights flashing and everything else. And they see me inside. So before they can, before they can get inside, I had, I had actually broken in through the wall in the back and, uh, the river was outside as well. So I make it outside as the cops are coming around the back. I make it outside. One of the cops actually grabs my arm. I wrestle away from him, dive in the river and swim down the river and get up getting away like that. Um, so I did not get arrested on that. There was another uh, episode Gosh, every, where I Every had, little uh, story, you got like a million stories. I can't, I can't yeah, do them all. There's a lot of criminal activity. <laughs> There's, uh, there was an instance where um, I broke into the, uh, the Hazard Community College. I, uh, I actually uh, camped out. I found a place to hide until everyone had left. So again, like two o'clock in the morning, I come out and I start stealing computers at Hazard Community College um, and resold those. I mean, there's a whole list of criminal activity. You could write like 10 life. books at this point, man. It's crazy. It's crazy. It's crazy. Okay. Yeah, so you're, you're trying to keep track of the criminal activity, and it's not that I'm trying to leave it out. It's just there's so damn much that I, I forget some of it. And so after he started getting into computer crime, learning how to scam people on eBay, then he started selling pirated software, like charging people for just a trial version or some bootleg copies of the software. So I got a lot of my inspiration from watching Bill O'Reilly bitch about things on Inside Edition. And one of the shows he was talking on was they were selling autographed baseballs of Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire. So I'm watching that and they were selling them on eBay. And I think at that point in time, they were 60 or $80 is what they were selling them for on eBay. I'm sitting there watching it like, you know, why not? So I skip class the next day, go down to the sports store. I think it was Academy. I go down to Academy, walk in, and I buy a case of Major League Baseballs. Stop by Kroger on the way home, buy a, a Sharpie pen, go home and start trying to sign these things and find out pretty quick that, hey, you know what? It's pretty hard to, to, to forge a signature on a round baseball. So I'm looking at these signatures. It doesn't look a damn thing like the signature I'm seeing online. So the next idea I get is like, I'm like, okay, well, I'll print out a certificate, a certificate of authenticity. I'll make it look like they've signed it right after the game. And it's, that's why it doesn't look quite right, but it'll come with a, you know, a COA. So I print out my own certificates of authenticity, put the entire case of baseballs up, you know, one by one on eBay, sell the entire case at $60 a piece. A couple weeks later, me and my wife are sitting at home, you know, it's, it's at night, and we get that cop knock, that bam, 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 bam. So, you know, even if you've never been, a cop's never knocked on your door, you know that's a cop knock at that point. So I get up. Susan is looking at me. She's sitting on his couch. I get up, open the door, and at the door is Sergeant Pat Tingle and a detective. Now, Pat Tingle, I, I, I come to know his name pretty well because he keeps visiting me over the, over the next few months. But um, he looks at me. Susan stands up. He looks at me. He's like, are you Brett Johnson? I'm like, yeah. He's like, uh, mind if we come in? I was like, yeah, come on in. So he, he walks in. Susan doesn't even look at them. She's just looking at me the entire time. Uh, Sergeant Tingle, he looks at me, he's like, uh, I'm going to talk to you about some baseball. So I was like, yeah. He's like, uh, Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire. And I was like, yes, sir. He's like, autographed. I was like, yes, sir. He's like, where'd you get them? I was like, I got them off eBay. You bought them off eBay. Yes, sir. 
with certificates of authenticity. Yes, sir. Mr. Johnson, we've got a uh, we've got a sample of their signatures down at the station, and it doesn't look anything like what you're selling. And I'm like, well, it comes with a certificate of authenticity. He's like, Mr. Johnson, we think that you sold those, that you signed those baseballs. I was like, no, sir. And we think that you printed off those certificates. No, sir. Susan, the entire time, is looking right at me. So he's like, Mr. Johnson, you're going to send these people their money back or we're going to put you in jail. Do you understand? I was like, yes, sir. So they leave. I look over. Susan has not, she has not looked at them the entire time. She's just looked at me. She's not said a single word. Now, up until this point, she doesn't know that I'm a criminal. So the door shuts. I look over at her and I'm like, what? And she's like, you son of a bitch. That's why you bought those goddamn baseballs. And I'm like, yeah. So that's when she found out I was a criminal. We're going to take a short break here. Stay with us. This episode is sponsored by Rocket Money. Are you like me and pay monthly subscriptions to way too many things? By the end of the busy week, the last thing I want to do is spend time budgeting all my expenses or tracking down customer service teams to cancel subscriptions I no longer use. But this is where Rocket Money can help us both. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money's dashboard shows off this month's spending compared to last month's, so you can clearly see your spending habits. Plus, they'll help create a custom budget and keep spending on track. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com darknet. That's rocketmoney.com slash darknet. Rocketmoney.com slash darknet. So did you get arrested for the fake autograph baseball thing? No, 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 no. That's that's one of the things you see about, uh, and even today you see that a lot about cybercrime and scams and fraud, is law enforcement will identify the person. But it's it's such a low level at that point or such a hassle that they basically just come in and say, hey, send the money back to these people, okay? Well, the only thing that tells someone like me or, you know, because there's this oh, there's this whole mindset with these online criminals. The only thing that really tells someone is, hey, I got away with it. I just need to make sure I'm more careful next time. And that's exactly what happens. And you also learn that, hey, you only return the money to the people who are complaining. So you're profiting at the same time, all right? And that that continues this trajectory. So you become an even better criminal and and basically law enforcement that that consequence of just law enforcement visiting trains you to become more careful the next time he was 26 years old when that happened and after that he learned how to install mod chips in playstations and he was good at this and he was starting to do it as a service like anyone who needed a mod chip installed they could come and pay him to do it and he'd get it done and there was no scam here it was just something he enjoyed doing for cash so I was installing mod chips. I was actually, I, I had partnered with the Electronic Games Boutique in the Fayette County Mall at that point so that any, any PlayStation 1 they sold, the kids that were selling them to these people would ask them, hey, you want a mod chip on that? If they said yes, I would install the mod chips for the guys. That led into installing mod chips into cable boxes to turn, turn on the channels, which in turn led into programming the satellite DSS cards so that, you know, the 18-inch satellite systems. At about the same time I start programming those cards, 
a Canadian judge ruled that it was legal for Canadian citizens to pirate satellite DSS signals. He said that, hey, since RCA is not selling the systems up here, my citizens can pirate signal. Overnight, what happens is, is you go down to Best Buy, you buy a system, take it out in the parking lot, pull the card out, throw the system away, program the card, ship it to Canada, you're making $500 a pop at about the same time that PayPal really becomes popular. All right, so I was making a lot of money on PayPal, having people pay by PayPal, $500 a pop, shipping cards to Canada. Had so many cards, had so many orders, I could not fill them all. Figured out pretty quick, I don't need to fill any of them. They're, who are they going to complain to? They're in Canada. It's not like they're going to do anything to me. So I, I don't fill any of the orders. Start stealing a lot of money. Got worried about how much was coming in. I was, I was stealing about $4,000 a week at that point. This was 1996, seven, somewhere through there. Got worried about how much was coming in. Thought they were going to look at me for money laundering. Figured the best thing I could do is get a fake driver's license. Open up a bank account under that. Launder the money through that. Cash out at an ATM. No one will ever know it's me. Didn't know where to get a fake ID. Got online, looked around, looked around, found this guy named Fake ID Man, who had a forum and everything else, and you know all the people on the forum were talking about how good his IDs were. He advertised all 50 states. I fell for that shit. So I sent him $200, I sent him my picture, he rips me off, and I get angry. I get really angry because I still need that ID, and I had never been ripped off like that before. So here I am, the victim. I keep looking around find this website, Counterfeit Library. Counterfeit Library, what they were doing was, is they were, their main business was selling counterfeit degrees. It was a degree mill type thing or counterfeit degrees as well. They had a forum on there that was somewhat defunct. No one was really using it. So I get on the forum and I really, the only thing I'm doing is bitching about being ripped off. About the same time I'm on there, these other two guys kind of buddy up with me. Their names were Mr. X. He was out of Los Angeles. Beelzebub was out of Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan, and we become buddies. I, I bitch every day. They're talking about, you know, some of the crimes and scams that they're doing. We, we also start talking on ICQ. Beelzebub reaches out to me after a couple of weeks, and he, he gets me on ICQ, and he's like, I can make you an ID. Well, by this point in time, I've, I'm pretty much friends with the people who run Counterfeit Library. They're, we're talking by email, by ICQ, and everything else like that. And uh, I'm like, well, make me an ID. And he's like, no, no, no. He's like, I'm going to charge you $200. And I'm like, yeah, like hell you are. He's like, look, man. He's like, if you're going to do this kind of stuff online, you've got to learn how to trust people at some point. So I'm going to make your ID, but I'm going to charge you $200 because you have to learn to trust people. So I thought about that. And I was like, i tell you what. I said, I'm going to send you $200. So that way, when you rip me off, I'll have them boot your ass off here too. So he's like, done, just send me the 200. So I sent him $200, sent him my picture. A couple weeks later, I get this ID in the name of Steven Schwecky. To me, it was the prettiest damn thing I'd ever seen. So I use it to set up bank accounts, to go to check cashing services, to commit all these different types of crimes. I'm very happy with that. He makes friends with the people on this site, Counterfeit Library, and he learns to trust them. He was teaching them like the scams he knew and they were teaching him the scams they knew. And by this point, Brett was using the name Gollum Fun on these online forums. So everyone in the forums and chat just knew him as Gollum Fun. Now this site, Counterfeit Library, changed the game. I mean, this was way before darknet marketplaces came around, but criminals still needed a place to come online and buy and sell criminal things. But the thing is, how do you know you can trust a person that you're buying something from? 
there's no real reputation system from someone you meet in a chat room or forum. So Counterfeit Library added a reputation feature. Specifically, you could vouch for someone, which meant if someone doesn't go through with a deal and you vouch for them, now it's on you to make things right. Now people suddenly had a way to have a more trustworthy interaction when buying illegal things from this website. The forum really takes off. When the forum takes off, it was initially me, Beelzebub, Mr. X, the first real seller that comes in. At that point was this guy who went by the screen name of Mubbin, M-U-B-I-N. He was from Pakistan, and what he offered was, is he said, hey, anyone needs any type of computer certificate from A plus on up through CCIE, I will take that for you in whatever name you need it taken in, and that way you get the certificate in your name. So he started selling that, and he provided that product, and it was it was really good. So if someone had, if someone wanted, you know, to be a CSO or whatever the hell they wanted, they could come up with any number of certificates, pay the price. So CCIE, Mubbin charged, I think, $2,500 for that at that point. <laughs> this is hilarious to me. Some guy in Pakistan who's skilled enough to pass a CCIE exam, which is very hard, is willing to sit for any test and give your name to complete it. Unreal! I've taken a bunch of these IT certification tests, and I remember after a while they started requiring to have your picture on the test results, and I always wondered why they added this extra security layer, but yeah, it's for stuff like this. Now I know. The thing about the thing about love, and Susan loved me to no end. She really did. I have no doubt about that. Love tends to blind people. You know, they don't want to think that you're this bad guy. And certainly I was the social engineer and I was a manipulator and everything else. And I I was able to uh, to convince her for three years that that wasn't happening until the police started to show up at the door, you know, through not Beanie Babies, but autographed, fraudulently autographed baseballs, uh, an entire shipment of uh, front page 98 that, were sh- that was shipped with a patch to turn it into the real program. You know, stuff like that. Cops start to show up and Susan finds out pretty quick that I'm a criminal. And then the next six years were me manipulating her, you know, telling her that uh, I've stopped, I will stop, I'm going to stop. And finally flying mad and telling her, hey, you like spending the money, don't you? The way she got away from me, and I think that she, uh, I think she inherently understood that the only way that I would ever give up on the marriage was through infidelity. So she starts cheating on me and I find out about it. And that is the line of the sand for me right there. So uh, took uh, I found out uh, what it was. And some of your listeners may recognize this. You know, you walk past someone's computer and they'll minimize the screen or hide the phone or whatever. And you're like, okay, some shit's going on there. Well, she, I would walk by her computer and she would switch to another screen or, you know, minimize it or whatever. And I'm like, okay, something's going on there. So I catch her in, in bed one morning. I go in, I, I'd placed... Um, key loggers on the computer and everything else. So I go and start seeing what she's been into and she's been cheating with this guy. So I sit there kind of stunned and uh, finally get up that morning. She's asleep in the bedroom and I walk in and I open up the wardrobe door and I get out a suitcase and I open it up and I start putting her clothes in it. She wakes up and she's like, where are you going? And I'm like, I'm not going anywhere. You are. And, um, I, I talked real big then, but the truth of the matter was, is it took about a week of me crying and everything else for me to, uh, for us to end that relationship. I took her back to Hazard, Kentucky, 
came back to Charleston, South Carolina, and that fear that I had always had of being abandoned, of uh, the people that I loved leaving, that became real. I caused it, of course, but it was still real to me. I started, I was walking around the house in a complete daze, just uh, getting suicidal. The only person I was talking to was a criminal friend of mine. His name was Sean Mims. And I got to the point, I told him through ICQ what was going on. And we started talking over the phone at that point. So I was talking to him and I was getting more and more suicidal. Realized it, picked up the phone book, went through... Uh, it's always been that weird shit with me. I went through the phone book, went through psychology, and I saw this criminal psychologist, and I was like, obviously, I need that. Called her crying, and she was like, come in today. So I went in, and I told her, I mean, I told her everything. Uh, after I asked her if she could tell on me, she's like, no, I can't tell on you as long as you're not actively trying to break the law. And I was like, okay. So I told her who I was and what was going on, and she was doing some good. I mean, she did a lot of good about talking about uh, motivations and my life and the things that were going on with me and, and listening to me. What happens is, is um, after about four months, I get, you know, you're lonely, man. I didn't have anybody to talk to. I didn't have any friends or anything. I had associates online. So I got lonely. I got horny. I had started drinking by that point. I was 34. I had never really drank before. So I started, I was a big fan of the Big Lebowski. So I thought, hey, let's start with the white Russians. So <laughs> I start drinking Get lonely one night, and I'm I'm horny, and I'm like, let's go to a strip club. I had never been to a strip club in my life, and I am that idiot. I walked in, and I had actually looked it up online. You know, I was that big guy that always researches everything. I was trying to find the strip club I'd be, you know, I'd get laid at. So it was called Joe's Roundup, and it was this little hole-in-the-wall place. I walk in, and there's literally two dancers there. The first one I see is Elizabeth, and... Uh, she comes over and she's like, you want to buy me a drink? And I was like, yeah, how much is a drink? And she was like, $25. And I was like, that's a hell of a drink. We spent, I don't know, three or four hours just, just talking. That's it, just talking. Little did I know that a lot of strippers, it's just talk. That's all you do. So I, I found myself infatuated with her. I, I didn't realize at that point in time, she, had, she was you know, asking me what kind of watch I wore and where I lived and what type of car I drove and everything else. And she was, you know, she was sizing me up. So I left that night walk back in a week later, second time I'd ever been to a strip club, walked back in a week later, looked at her and I was like, hey, would you like to go out to dinner with me? And she was like, well, I work overnight, I can't go out to dinner, but I can do lunch. And I was like, well, hell, let's go see, let's go do lunch. So she picked out uh, one of these really expensive restaurants, of course. Elizabeth had a taste for expensive things and Brett thought that if he could buy her those things she wanted, then it would show his love and she'd like him. She was also a stripper and got wasted a lot. So maybe she didn't quite care where the money was coming from either. So this gave Brett an incentive to kick the online crimes into high gear. We were pretty big on fake driver's licenses, eBay, PayPal fraud. Little did we know that there was this kid by the name of Dmitry Golubov, who um, he was a spammer. And he had been watching what we were doing with Counterfeit Library. So he picks up the phone one day. He calls his buddies. They call their buddies. They end up having a physical conference in Odessa, and they hatch this idea for a site called Carter Planet. So Carter Planet is basically the genesis of credit card fraud as we know it. This Dimitri guy who went by script on the forum was trying to sell credit card stuff on Counterfeit Library, but since nobody had ever done this on the site, nobody believed him. 
At this point, Brett, or Gollum Fun, was pretty senior on the site, and all sellers had to be checked out by him before they could sell on the site. So Dimitri gets in touch with Brett. He comes on as the screen name Script, and he starts talking about how he's got credit card information. That, hey, you give me an address, a phone number, wait five business days, you can order whatever you want to order. Well, since Brett had to confirm that these stolen credit cards that Dimitri was selling were real, he called up Dell and ordered $5,000 worth of computers with this stolen credit card, then calls up Thompson's computer warehouse and buys another $4,000 worth of stuff, all with the stolen credit cards Dimitri gave to him to try. And he waits five business days. All that product ships, it arrives at the drop address. I'm sitting there looking at $9,000 worth of computer stuff. Post the review on Counterfeit Library. And I say overnight, but and it may have been overnight. It was no more than 48 hours. But that review posts, and literally everything shifts from that eBay fraud, PayPal, and fake ID stuff to credit fraud. Everyone sees the potential in that, and everyone says, we want this. From that point in time, Dimitri brings over Boa, who sold, uh, his name is Roman Vega. He sold uh, dump information. He sold uh, counterfeit credit cards as well. He brings over a guy named Big Buyer. He brings over all these other Ukrainians that provided a slew of different products and services so that you could hide identity, you could get uh, counterfeit credit cards, dump information, uh, CBV information online, whatever you wanted to, to steal any type of credit. What people on the site were doing were buying shipments of expensive things like laptops or something with stolen credit cards and then turning them around and selling that stuff on eBay. A good carter, and I, I term myself a good carter, you would put, you'd, you could put cash in pocket thirty to 40000 a month on profit on that, all right? That changes with CVV1. With CVV1, that became thirty to 40000 a day that people were pulling out of ATMs. Oh, the CVV1 hack. Okay, so think about it. Suppose you had a picture of the front and back of someone's credit card. Yeah, sure, that's enough information to buy whatever you want online. But if you want to make money from that, it takes that extra step of selling whatever it is you bought for actual cash. And that's what people were doing on the site. But what people wanted to do was skip that whole step of buying something just to sell it so they can make money. Why not use that card and just put it into an ATM and pull money out? But if all you have are the numbers of the card and not the actual card, you can't walk up to an ATM and just type those numbers in and get the money out. You need that physical card. And nobody had that. So Counterfeit Library began exploding with chatter about how to get mag stripe writers and blank credit cards and ways to write the data to the card. But here's the problem. There's a security code on all the cards to fight this exact problem so that if someone gets your credit card numbers, they can't just write it to a new card. It's a special code that the bank will check, but it's not visible when you just look at the card. Well, what someone found out is that there were some banks that didn't implement that security code at all. You could just write any data to the card and put anything in the security code and the ATMs would accept it. This enabled carters to just buy a ton of credit cards from customers at that bank and write them to blank cards and then go to ATMs and cash out. This became known as the CVV-1 hack. The Ukrainians simply could not put cash in pocket literally themselves, so they had to rely on money mules. And the, the, the order came down, or the offer was, we will provide the, 
the track data. We need money mules. At that point, you will send us back 60%. You will keep 40%. So this became the thing. The Ukrainians on the site would give you some stolen credit cards. You'd then write that data to a blank credit card and then take it to an ATM and cash out whatever you could. Then you'd have to send 60% of your take back to the Ukrainians and they'd send you more cards. If you had enough cards and could hit up enough ATMs, you could make thirty dollars to $40,000 a day with this. And it was around this time that a new site showed up called Shadow Crew. Yeah, so let's talk about Shadow Crew. Okay. So sh- you started Shadow Crew? No. So what happened Wikipedia was, says you did. <laughs> uh, yeah, Wikipedia says I, I did. And, here, and, I, and I will accept that to a degree with this caveat. What happens is we were running Counterfeit Library, okay? Counterfeit Library had transitioned over to Strictly Credit. So we had people on there that were selling driver's licenses. We had uh, Gray Wolf. We had a couple of Michigan guys. Lighthawk was one of them. Seth Sanders was an ID maker. Seth really hated, and I mean he hated, the entire credit game. So he, his only interest was in making fake IDs. So he comes to me and he was like, because um, we always talked on Sunday night on ICQ, all of us did. And he was like, Gollum, can I, uh, do you mind if I go off and I make a website that just deals in fake IDs? And I'm like, dude, I don't care about that. Go off and do that. I, I wish you the best. So he goes off and builds Shadow Crew. Okay? Just him. He builds Shadow Crew. The problem was that Shadow Crew was only, was only fake IDs. No one was interested in fake IDs unless you needed one to, to run a credit card. No one was interested in that. So he's got maybe 60 members over there. All the business is over on Counterfeit Library. Our problem was Counterfeit Library was really the Wild West. There was no moderation, anything else. If I wanted somebody booted off one of those forums, I had to contact the owners of uh, Counterfeit Library and say, hey, get rid of this guy. Because of that, and again, Counterfeit Library was, was its prime business was the degree mill stuff, the counterfeit degrees. There was a real distance learner, learning guy that had been on Good, Good Morning America. He was well-respected throughout the, the country and everything else. He found out about Counterfeit Library. He had a large forum and a large following on his forum. He posts about Counterfeit Library on his forum. What happens is, is those members on his forum start to flood our forum with just bullshit, just troll post, enough so that you had to go five or six pages deep to start getting the real meat of counterfeit library. So that's, it's starting to get overran. We're having uh, Joe job attacks, everything else like that. Just very hard to moderate, especially since we didn't have moderators on, on site. So Seth comes over to me, I don't know, two months later, and he was like, uh, Gollum, why don't you come over to Shadow Crew? And I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, well, look. He said, I've got the platform built. Not only that, but I've, I've, we're running PHP. We're not logging IPs, at least on the, on the forum side. We're logging it on the server side. He said, we've got all this going on. It's much more secure. We've got moderators. We've got admins and everything else. And I'm like, look, man. I said, I, that sounds like a good idea. I said, I'll come over. Make me super admin. I'll come over as long as you let me put in charge of the forums who I want in charge, and you let me let me add whatever forms I want to add. And he was like, done. So Brett, or Gollum Fun, was a moderator and admin of Shadow Crew, and he made an area for carding. 
and he got the Ukrainians on board to the new site, and things were looking good on this new site. Carding was big on Shadow Crew, probably its biggest draw, but he started seeing people posting database dumps to the site too. And this was cool to Gollum Fun. He started looking through these to see if there's anything useful for him in that data. Sometimes he'd find some data to be able to open accounts under other people's names and stuff, and there were little things that he was doing to make money from this. Then after that, the next real database of consequence that I got was the California State Death Index. So had access to that, started doing a lot of research on, okay, how can you use this? And the idea, the first idea that I had was, I wonder if you could apply for social security benefits for these people. Because part of the research I found out was the, you, the federal government doesn't know you're dead unless there's been a social security death benefit filed for that person. So I was like, okay, can I file for social security benefits? Tried to do that. Turns out you could not because the Social Security Administration wanted that person to come in for a physical interview. The number had been dormant for so long. So that didn't work. So the next idea I had was, well, I wonder if you could file income taxes on these people. It turns out you can. So I started filing income tax returns, fraudulent income tax returns on dead people and stealing a lot of money. Um, I got to where I could file a tax return once every six minutes manually. I'd file tax returns Sunday through Wednesday, usually 100, 180 tax returns a week. Thursday, I'd take a road trip, plot out a map of ATMs. Friday and Saturday, cash out to the tune of usually $150,000, $160,000 a week. Put that money in a backpack, come back home to Charleston, South Carolina, throw the money in a spare bedroom that I had. Whoa, that's a lot of money. What he was doing was just submitting tax returns for random people and then getting the money back from their returns put on a prepaid debit card and then cashing that out. Now, by this time, Shadow Crew had attracted quite a bit of users. At its peak, it had 4,000 users. So there was a certain amount of critical mass at this point. More criminals attracted more criminals and more criminal behavior. And keep in mind, this is way before Tor or the dark web or even Bitcoin. This is all going on in the year 2004. So this was a website just on the clear net, right? On the internet for anyone to see. And some of the stuff Gollum Fund saw going down was just crazy. There were three rules that, we, that I implemented that I wanted followed by. Those three rules were no counterfeit currency because I was scared to death that we were going to get Secret Service attention. And at my, at my, my view at that point in time is there's no law enforcement agency better than Secret Service. So no counterfeit currency. I didn't want any drugs because I I'd historically had this, this just prejudice against drugs. I didn't want anyone using drugs or selling drugs. And finally, no child pornography. The only one we really, we really obeyed was no child porn. Uh, we had uh, the Thomas Cook traveler's checks, which were, I mean, they were one-to-one -one as far as uh, not being able to tell the difference. We had the uh, USA super bills that were coming in. We had the EU super bills at one point. So we had counterfeit currency out the wazoo. Drugs, so we allowed uh, first pot and ecstasy, and then it turned into Oxycontin and everything else from that point. And even I dealt in Oxycontin at one point. As you can imagine, Shadow Crew was a wild place, the site that launched a thousand criminals. Now, the site was started by a guy named Seth, but at some point, Seth gave the site to Brett. So I get David Thomas a job working with Big Buyer. Big Buyer sends David enough money 
to go from, I think David was hiding out in Texas at that point. Big Buyer wires him the money to go from Texas up to Issaquah, Washington, and to rent a temporary office space. The idea being that Big Buyer is going to card items to the Issaquah, Washington temporary office space. David's going to pick them up, sell them on eBay, give 50% of the profit to Big Buyer. Okay, that's the deal. So, big, so David goes to Issaquah, gets his temporary office space. Big Buyer places the first order. Now, I'm friends with Big Buyer at this point. Big Buyer places the first order, Outpost.com. First order is like $18,000. At that point in time, it was the largest order that Outpost had ever been hit with. All right? Order goes through. Outpost ships the items. David gets the items in, takes them back to the hotel, happier than a pig in shit. He starts bragging about it to me and Kim. I'm happy we're make, gonna make a lot of money. Kim, the bookseller, the guy who thinks he's Jason Bourne, hears this and he comes to me on ICQ. He's like, he knows my name by this point. He's like, Brett, I wanna go to Issaquah to make some money. I'm like, dude, you're making money. He's like, no, I wanna go up there. I was like, go, just be careful. So Kim gets in his Saturn, drives his ass from Denver up to Issaquah, Washington. They get there the night before. So Big Buyer, in the meantime, Big Buyer has placed a second credit card order with Outpost.com going to the exact same drop address. Meanwhile, Outpost.com has found out that the first order is fraudulent. They have notified the Issaquah PD. The Issaquah PD has asked Outpost.com, hey, can you guys just send some empty boxes? Outpost has said, why, we'd be happy to. Meanwhile, David and Kim meet at the hotel. They party. They literally party all night long. Now, the rule was at that point in time, you get up the next morning. Before you go to your drop address, you sign on to the credit. You use the credit card login. You sign on to make sure you can sign on. If you can sign on, you go pick up your packages. If you can't sign on, then that means that the bank has been alerted to possible fraud. You go back to sleep that day. They didn't sign on that day. Meanwhile, Big Buyer though, Big Buyer has tried to sign on and he can't. So all day long, he's been trying to contact David and Kim. David and Kim have been out of, out of service. They are en route to pick up the packages. Big Buyer is on ICQ frantic. I need to contact David Thomas. And I'm like, let me see what I can do. I can't contact him either. What happens is, David's got this old Cadillac. David's in the driver's seat. Kim's in the passenger seat. David's girlfriend, Bridget, is in the back seat. They pull into the complex where the drop addresses, the temporary office space. As they pull into the complex, David sees this van. The van has somebody sitting in it, but the seat is turned incorrectly. It's turned where the guy is looking directly out of the, out of the driver's window. David looks at Kim. That's an undercover officer. Kim's like, nah. So they pull on up. They pull on up to the drop address. Kim's like, I'll go in and get the packages. He walks in, looks at the kid behind the counter. I believe you've got some packages for me. Kim, the kid's like, yeah, hold on just a second. The kid disappears behind the wall, out pops the Issaquah PD, arrests Kim, David in the driver's seat of the Eldorado, sees the arrest take place, hightails it out of there. The police arrest David on the interstate. David, and here's the other fuckwit 
that he does. David has several fake IDs in his wallet with his real ID. So they arrest him. Now, now what happens is, is David has the outstanding warrants out of Nebraska for check fraud, so we can't bond him out. Seth, though, Kim Taylor didn't have any outstanding warrants, so Kim Taylor has a bond. Seth uses his girlfriend's credit card to pay for Kim Taylor's bond. That gave a really bad taste in Seth Sanders' mouth. So he comes to me and he's like, I quit. You have it. And Seth was the guy who started and owned Shadow Crew. It was this whole event that made Seth quit and give the site to Brett. So Brett took over ShadowCrew.com and he was even paying the hosting bills. And by the way, this site was never profitable on its own. It didn't charge users or anything. So it did cost Brett to keep it going, which is wild because seven years later, Silk Road was making millions of dollars doing basically the same thing. Because Shadow Crew became a marketplace for illegal things. It was like a darknet market before the darknet existed. But over time, Brett started noticing some of the writing on the walls. As he just explained, a few people on the site were starting to get arrested. And around this time, Brett was starting to see some IP addresses of users on the site that resolved to .gov domains, meaning they could be feds. A couple more users were getting arrested too. And so Brett suspected some of these users might be cops. I mean, to this day, you can peg law enforcement pretty easy because they, they just stand out. They ask the wrong types of questions the wrong way at the wrong time. You're able to see what time they're, they're logged in and everything else, and they operate the same damn hours every single day, everything else like that. So we were able to peg law enforcement that was coming in. So people were getting picked up, and I started getting really, really worried. At the same time, I'm doing the, the tax return fraud, stealing a lot more money, and decide that, hey, it's time for me to leave. So I announced my retirement, I believe, of uh, April 15th, 2004, was my retirement date. And that's when I, I leave the site. Now, just because he left Shadow Crew didn't mean he stopped running scams. In fact, his scams were getting bigger now than ever at this point. Specifically, he still loved doing tax refund fraud. In his best week doing that, he made $160,000. <laughs> that's just one week of work. And a lot of this money was going to Elizabeth, his stripper girlfriend. <laughs> but we're at an hour into this episode now, and I don't even think we've covered half of what Brett did. So I need a break, and maybe you do too. Okay. I think this was good for day one. <laughs> I, I would like to pick it up again maybe next weekend where we talk about you going on the run. Yeah. Stealing 600K. <laughs> Big story. Big story, Jack. I know. <laughs> I mean, I know. it's a lot of crap. Big thank you to Brett Johnson, a.k.a. Gollum Fun, for sharing this crazy story with us. Don't forget to come back in two weeks where you'll hear the final installment of this story. And you're not going to believe what happens, so don't miss it. This show is made by me, The Sneaker, Jack Recider. I did the sound design for this one, too. Editing help this episode is by The Spontaneous Damien. And this episode was assembled by Tristan Ledger and mixed by Proximity Sound. Our theme music is by The Cyber Gang, Breakmaster Cylinder. I found a really big spider by my front door the other day, and I tried calling Amazon Web Services to take care of it, but no help, strangely. I decided to just try talking with the spider and pleading with it. Well, it turns out he's a web designer, so I showed him my computer. 
Well, he crawled into my keyboard. He's still in there. He's under control. This is Darknet Diaries. <laughs>